time we stop spreading fear and acknowledge some facts. This is not about freedom or personal choice. You know, you can't work anymore unless you do what I say. That's essentially what a vaccine passport is. Wear masks obviously is a violation of your personal rights, and so is being locked down. You've been patient. Your patience is wearing thin. Open society back up. Restore our freedoms. End this madness. I'm George Christensen, host of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked, the podcast that's lifting the veil on the Chinese Communist Party created COVID-19 virus. And we're finding out what lies underneath. And as we heard in our last episode from the inventor of mRNA technology himself, Dr. Robert Malone, what's lied underneath is a lot of safety issues uh, with these vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines. We're going to talk this episode with Dr. Malone more about what the proof points are beyond those concerns that he cited in our last interview. We're also going to talk about the issues and the risks that involve children being vaccinated. You'll find this very interesting. Every parent should watch this episode. Well, we were joined in the last episode of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked by the inventor of mRNA technology himself, Dr. Robert Malone. He joins us again to talk more about the vaccines, about uh, safety issues with the vaccines, particularly safety issues with children being vaccinated. And I want to talk more about what's driving all of this push for vaccinations. Uh, thanks very much for joining us from the United States once again, Dr. Malone. Um, firstly, you ran through a huge list of the potential problems in our last episode uh, of uh, these these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines in particular. Uh, tell us, um, you know, the sceptics out there, the people who are, uh, well, actually, they're not the sceptics, they're the ones, that are the, the true believers, I guess, of, uh, of Big Pharma. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, those benevolent, kind uh, institutions that never do anything wrong, never have any criminal record. But anyway, there's a lot of people out there and uh, public life, the media world and uh, the political world that seem to accept everything they say, uh, but they would also criticise you and I for this very interview and say we're spreading misinformation or disinformation. So tell us, where are the proof points that people can go to, to, to see all of these issues that the vaccines have in terms of safety? So they've actually been published in the literature quite a bit, and uh, that's readily found. You have to dig for it a little bit because it's gotten much harder to publish things. That's another part of the censorship that's happened is the academic journals have been compromised. But yeah. from earlier on, you can find that information. Then there's another one that's a fascinating reveal. You may recall that uh, a lawsuit in the United States against Pfizer and the FDA seeking the disclosure of the full Pfizer dossier that was submitted to the FDA now that Comirnaty mm -hmm. has technically been licensed uh, in, in the United States. And so the rules are that until the product is licensed, the uh, dossier that's submitted is confidential. But after licensure, then it's supposed to be disclosed. But Pfizer and the FDA are resisting that and are now insisting that they can't release those things for 75 years. But there was an initial court ruling 
that they should release this information, but it's so it's hundreds of thousands of pages of documents, according to Pfizer. And so uh, they claim that it's too much of a burden to uh, disclose all of this at once. And so they want to dribble it out over the next, I don't know how many years, uh, I guess 75 or 50. Uh, but there was an initial block of data that was released. And in that included uh, documents that showed this huge list, much longer than what I've just disclosed, of adverse events that uh, Pfizer knew about. Now, yeah. in addition to that, we have the various databases that have been accumulated by governments. And this includes the Israeli database, although that one is a little problematic since Pfizer has, let's say gently, invested so much in the Israeli government and the Ministry of Health in, in acquiring the rights that they have acquired and imposing the terms and conditions that they have with their contract having to do with the Israelis being able to disclose adverse events. Some of the best data that we get on the AEs, of course, the yellow card system in the UK is a good source. And uh, then we have the uh, Scandinavian databases and uh, Iceland are often considered among the better ones. And it's intriguing that it's the Scandinavian countries largely that have put a halt on the use of most of these genetic vaccines, particularly for those under 30. So uh, that's the, in terms of the skeptics that uh, may check us, uh, there's abundant literature on the adverse events and uh, the uh, various governmental databases, including VAERS and mm. the CMS database in the United States and I mentioned these other ones. So those have, uh, for instance, if we wanna just look at reproductive toxicology in children 18 and under, which do uh, occasionally um, uh, engage in reproductive behavior, let's say gently for a general audience, uh, there are significant adverse event reports from the vaccine associated with that and reproductive health in these what mm. what most of us would call children. So all of mm. this is public information and uh, it, those who wish to deny it, uh, they're free to deny it and, and take the risk themselves. The way I like to put it, and I put it in a recent little clip that's gone viral a bit, is if you're a parent, you need to think twice and really be confident that you wanna have your child vaccinated. It really should be your choice. It shouldn't be the state that's interjecting itself into the decision that belongs in the family, in my opinion. I feel that quite strongly. But the thing is that if your child is damaged, and hopefully they won't be if they take the vaccine, but at a frequency of something in the range of one in a thousand, one to 2,000, there will be adverse events in, in children. And yep. uh, that, that you could say, well, that's not very frequent. One in a thousand, one in 2000, that means there's a really good chance my child won't be damaged. That's true. Mm. But the chance that they will be damaged by the virus or die is really yes. small. In the United States, it's been less than 500 deaths in children since the beginning of the outbreak, 18 and under. And those 
children, every single one of them had major pre-existing conditions, whether it's morbid obesity, diabetes, cancer, cystic fibrosis, other major medical problems. And it's really better to say that they died with the virus than of the virus. One of the problems we have in the United States, I don't know about Australia, is the government has created financial incentives for hospitals and others to declare mm -hmm. somebody as having been infected. And so all kinds of gaming is going on in the hospitals where uh, basically the decision was made by our government here in the States that, that uh, if you have virus at the time of death, you're considered to have died from the virus. So just to yeah. take the absurd example, if you had a, a gunshot to the head, uh, but you were infected with the virus, you're considered to have died from the virus and not from lead poisoning. And then there's the interesting recent data coming out of the UK that something like 30% uh, or more of those that are inf infected have been in within the context of hospital admissions. They were infected while they were in the hospital. They didn't come in with COVID. They picked it up at the hospital. So we have all kinds of problems with the data, but uh, and and it's true that many of these databases are self-reported, although that's not the case with the yellow card system in the UK, and it's not the case with the databases in the Scandinavian countries. But the the data of these adverse events is all there. But as I was saying with children, as parents, you have to think hard, accept the responsibility. If something happens to your child, you're going to have to live with that. And your child is going to have to live with that. And these types of adverse events that I'm describing, damage to the brain, damage to the heart, the clotting problems, potential immune reset problems, the reproductive toxicology problems, they can affect uh, your children for the rest of their lives. Most of those things can't be fixed. You can't fix heart damage, it scars. You can mm. fix damage to the brain from blood clots and other phenomena. And uh, you're going to have to live with this. So think so, twice so, before you do it. So let me press you a bit more on this particular topic. Um, is it true to say that the risk of deaths in children from the vaccine would probably outweigh the risk of deaths from the virus? Yeah, <clears throat> or there's another way to say that, um, you know, number number that you have to treat to prevent one death. So the data, depending, and in, in this is people argue about the nuance and we get into the weeds of how much is the VAR system underreporting death and adverse yeah. events, et cetera, et cetera, and we can go around and around. But it it in most people that look carefully at this and aren't um, biased in some way towards a positive reporting for the for the vaccine, it mm -hmm. seems that the numbers come up something in the range of six children, uh, six excess deaths from the vaccine in children for every one life saved. That's crazy. So, uh, yeah, so it's, they're small numbers, but uh, it is, it, you know, it's not a small number if it's your child. I, yeah, I uh, spent 
I spent the uh, day two weekends ago in Nashville with the son, uh, with the father that had had lost one of his his lost his son uh, mm -hmm. that was speaking out clearly lost his son to the Pfizer jab. We have uh, clear reports of four dead in Vietnam from these mRNA vaccines children. There was another report just the other day from another emerging economy. I don't remember which. It might have been India. So the children do die. Children are damaged. And even young adults uh, have these problems. The statement that I made uh, was recorded in Puerto Rico and was actually written by myself and a colleague of mine. We worked on that together. I did the final edits. But he's a father of a Navy SEAL. This is a very high-performing young man that is his oldest child, his oldest son. Uh, very gung-ho, very pro-military, very committed to his country. He's a Navy SEAL. That means he's extremely high-performing. He had received the infection and recovered from it in about three days because he's a very healthy young man. And it didn't affect any of his performance because these are measured carefully as his ability to uh, swim underwater and, and uh, exert himself in other ways. And then the mandate came out that he had to accept the vaccine because he's a member of the military in the United States. So he asked his father which vaccine to take. His father asked some physicians he knew in Mayo. They recommend that he take the uh, adenovirus vector, the Janssen vector vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, when my colleague told me that this was the decision and this is what I'd done, I, I, he had done, I, I was a little shocked. I said, that's absolutely not the case. That is not a standard vaccine and it has the worst adverse event profile of the bunch. Plus, your risk of adverse events is much greater if you've already received the infection and had natural immunity develop. Now, unfortunately, what happened with the son is he took the, the adenovirus vector and he did have a major reaction. It took him out for about a week. So he was much sicker than he had been with the disease itself. And it did damage his heart. And now he's in flight school. And he's concerned that his career is going to be over because he's not going to be able to pass the physical exams that is necessary because his cardiac and pulmonary function are compromised. So this, mm -hmm. this, uh, this messaging about be careful uh, when you make the decision to have your child vaccinated is in part I'm speaking, um, my colleague is speaking through me. He had this personal experience. I think he has a certain uh, burden on, on himself for having advised his son to take this J&J uh, &J product and then having this uh, event happen that may compromise his military career, something that he's mm -hmm. been very passionate about. So well, that's well, where well, that's coming from is, is this does happen. It happens rarely, hopefully, but but in fact, it happens in terms of hospitalized myocarditis, according to the Hong Kong data, something like one in 2,700 kids, boys that get the vaccine, get hospitalized with myocarditis. That's not small. Could you just say that number again? One in? 
2,700, according to the Hong wow. Kong data. Mm-hmm. So, so, and then I, there's, I, I would, there's the, there's a case of Maddie DeGarry, the case of Maddie DeGarry. She was one of the uh, children at age 12 enrolled in the original Pfizer study. And uh, she's listed in the Pfizer database as having developed a stomach ache after jab one. And so she didn't go on to jab two, and she's not on the final assessment. Well, it turns out she didn't have a stomach ache. She had a seizure. And she's now completely paralyzed, wheelchair-bound for the rest of her life and being fed through a nasogastric tube. They hid that in their data analysis. They hid it from the government. They hid it from all of us. And if you take her as any indication of the frequency, that would suggest that you're going to have young girls at least having this kinds of this kind of damage at the rate of something in the range of one in 2000 also if she's an indicator so there's there's many of these adverse events these are only a couple and uh like i said they can't be reversed if they happen so in australia they've purchased uh enough vaccinations enough vaccines rather to uh vaccinate all school children Uh, that's news that we heard probably less than a month ago uh there is going to be a push on to vaccinate children as young as five in this country uh now i think that this is nuts i think that if uh, uh that is correct and i have uh little reason to believe that it's not correct that for every six children that die uh, because of an adverse event from the vaccine, we're saving one potential life from COVID-19. That would be reason enough not to do it. So, uh, you know, I'm going to get condemned, no doubt, uh, by the media and all the rest of them for saying to people, do not vaccinate your children. Do not vaccinate your children. I probably could not say that clear enough. You know, so there's one, one little one little nuance you may want to include in your message. Okay. And and that is to say don't vaccinate healthy children. Correct. Correct. So there, yep. there are there are children and absolutely don't the the state interjecting itself to force the child to be vaccinated, I believe is obscene. It is so crazy unethical. Um I reckon I, that's coming. I can't believe it's happening. I reckon uh, that's coming. I reckon that you will have schools here in Australia. I'm not sure what's happening in the States and other nations, but uh, I'm sure you will have schools that say that your child cannot attend unless they are uh, double vaccinated. Uh, that, that's so there's that. there's multiple papers out over the last week. We got a bunch of Christmas presents from Nature Magazine, among others, and I've listed them in today's Substack, if, if anyone cares to look. But they clearly document that children's immune responses against this virus are robust. Um, They clear the infection quite well. Their innate immune response is very effective. There is no reason to vaccinate them. They aren't Mm -hmm. getting benefit from these vaccines. As you mentioned, their risk is higher for death and damage from the vaccine than from the disease. And uh, they develop natural long-lived immunity my good friend Gert Vandenbosch makes the point that the children are like the natural sponge reservoir to help keep this virus from evolving to escape the effect of the vaccines and then putting the elderly and those that are at highest risk 
at even greater risk because the vaccines will no longer work for them. And we're seeing this and we're seeing it first with Delta. Now we're seeing it with Omicron. Fortunately, Omicron generally is causing less pathology, but it's more highly infectious. So it's still filling up hospitals because even though for any one person, their probability of having severe disease is lower, there's so many more people being infected all at once because it moves really, really fast. Um, it, it's highly, highly infectious. It's important to know about Omicron that the reproduction number, the baseline R0, which is a measure of, in a, in a, in a situation in which there's no other intervention, how, how many people would be infected by me as I move about in the world um, mm -hmm. if I have the virus? And it's looking like the original uh, Wuhan strain had an R0 of something like two or three. Mm -hmm. Delta has an R0 of something like five or six. Mm -hmm. And Omicron has an R0 of something like seven to ten. So that yep. means Omicron is infectious like measles is. Basically, yep. a measles outbreak in a population that doesn't have resistance, and these vaccines are so leaky to Omicron, they provide little resistance at all. That means that the virus is going to spread throughout the population, whether you have masks, whether you're having um, internment camps in the north, or whatever <laughs> crazy stuff your politicians are doing, it's not going to matter. You're going to get infected by Omicron. Get and yeah. I, I actually and heard our chief medical officer in Queensland actually say that. But if we, there was a strain to get, this is the one to get it, right? I mean, we've got politicians in the media hopefully. setting their hair on fire about Omicron. Um, yeah. Do, tell us, what do you think about the uh, the deadliness of Omicron? Uh, it sort of, it's almost seemed to be like this is the plague once again. So there's certainly a lot of fear porn coming out of places yeah. like New York right now. And, uh, and yet if you drill in, you know, it's a lot of hyperbole. Oh no. Uh, you know, the sky is falling. Uh, but, um, oh, but by the way, the hospitalization rate is really low. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and, uh, the people that have had the most experience with Omicron, of course, is South Africa. And again and again and again, the reports we're getting from South Africa is that it's pretty much a nothing burger. Yeah. Now, there is some troubling data out of uh, uh, Denmark that is mm -hmm. a bit concerning. And we've seen this kind of as a trend gradually in the UK data and Scottish data also. But there is a data set um, from this early aspect of Omicron infection that suggests that we may have a significant negative efficacy of vaccination, especially after a couple of months. In other words, yeah. people that are a couple of months out from vaccination or from boosting um, may actually be more prone to getting infected with Omicron. Now, there's some uh, nuances in that. Does that mean that we're having vaccine-enhanced disease or infection? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, one of the things that happens when people are told that vaccines work, if they've taken a vaccine and it'll protect them against infection, is they'll change their behavior. So they may be going to parties and doing stuff that the other people that aren't infected that are functioning as the control group aren't doing. 
And so you have to be really careful in looking for the confounding variables in these kinds of data set. But it is certainly worrisome. It certainly shows that the vaccines aren't providing much, if any, protection, except perhaps from death uh, or mm. extreme disease. But the natural infection provides at least that, if not more. The other thing is that even with the, we were told, it seems like, is it only three weeks ago? Pfizer CEO made announcements that, well, if you take the third jab, then you're going to be protected against Omicron. And Tony Fauci was saying the same thing. But now we have data as opposed to speculation and press releases. And we know that, in fact, uh, the boosters aren't working that well. And their effectiveness tapers off quite quickly, say, at 10 weeks. Uh, and then you're back down at, uh, you know, low double digit, uh, you know, 10 percent, 15 percent protection. And the problem with this whole thing, with these leaky vaccines, is that it's pretty much a textbook example of what to do if you want to evolve a virus as a vaccine escape mutant. And the policy of jab everybody with the leaky vaccine that doesn't provide good protection against infection, replication, and spread is, is basically what you would do if you wanted to generate a virus that is highly resistant to vaccination. And no surprise, that's what we're seeing. Now, there's some data that I just saw today. It's not published yet, but it's coming from the uh, mutation tracker world, uh, which is constantly on edge looking for the latest information. And it suggests that some of the Delta variants are acquiring mutations that are similar to the Omicron variants. So one of the things that's really intriguing about Omicron is the idea of convergent evolution. Almost all of these mutations present in Omicron have been found in other viruses but it seems that we're kind of driving towards a selection for some reason of a virus that is uh, readily able to escape vaccination. I can't imagine why that would be, uh, but that does seem to be the case. So I think we're gonna find ourselves really quickly in a situation, we already do. The monoclonal antibodies aren't working. That data is now published. Uh, they there's a couple of the monoclonal cocktails that have some effectiveness against Omicron. The GSK is one, and there's another one coming out of China, but they're not being made at scale yet because when the virus evolves to escape the vaccine, it's also escaping most of the monoclonal antibody activity because they're all directed at the receptor binding domain. So we've lost, it appears, the benefits of most of the monoclonals that we had had, that we had hoped for. Um, we're losing the protection from the vaccines by over-vaccinating. The children will further ex accelerate this if we decide to jab all of them. The children don't need the vaccine. They've got excellent immune systems and they kick this virus out really fast, except for those that have significant prior disease. And, uh, then we're going on with this, you know, it, 
two jabs, no three jabs. Now the Israelis are at four jabs. There's a whole bunch of problems associated with that strategy. One of them is called high zone tolerance. You, your audience understands this as the way that you induce uh, protection in your child if they have seasonal allergies. They go to the rheumatologist or the allergist and he gives them allergy shots repeatedly. That's, that generates high zone tolerance and it deletes T cells that are responding. The other thing that's happening is that we're jabbing people with mismatched vaccine. We're forcing your immune system to focus and respond to a virus that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So the whole thing is, and then, then there's the problem that the, as I mentioned before, the MRNA vaccines at least seem to induce some sort of transient T cell dysfunction. T cells are the thing you need to clear the virus. So there's just a whole lot of crazy in this idea. I like to say, if you give a three-year-old a hammer, everything becomes a nail. <laughs> and the, these, you know, we've now politicized the whole thing. Yeah. And we have, uh, um, sorry uh, to say it this way, politicians making public health decisions that they're not trained to make. I think they're mm-hmm. doing it out of fear and desperation. They don't know what else mm-hmm. to do. And they're damaging the population. They're damaging yeah. it in multiple ways. And they don't even understand what they're doing. It's just, it's mindless, uh, fear-driven, dysfunctional behavior that's damaging Australia's population. It's, it's uh, I don't know what else to say. So, so this leads me to the ultimate question, and, and I am asking for you to speculate here. There's all of the stuff that you've talked about, the, the particularly the manufacturers of the vaccine must have known about it. Perhaps the regulators knew about it as well. If, uh, say, um, companies like Pfizer and Moderna didn't cover up potential adverse events, potential um, the death rates and that sort of thing. Uh, but but e- even the leakiness of the vaccines, I mean, where this is all heading to, as you've just described over the last uh, 10, 15 minutes and across the course of these two interviews, um, this all must have been known and yet we plough on anyway. Well, that ends part two of our interview with the fantastic Dr. Malone. Uh, Stay tuned for the next edition where we are going to hear more from Dr. Malone about what he thinks is driving all of the madness uh, in terms of the response to this pandemic. You'll find it very interesting. Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked is hosted by George Christensen, MP. You can find more episodes from this series at goodsource.news forward slash unmasked. This show is produced and published without censorship or paywall by the team at The Good Source, thanks to The Good Source supporters. If you'd like to be part of the solution by helping us produce more truthful content like this each month, head to goodsource.news and click on the support button. Make sure to follow George Christensen on Telegram, Getter, Gab, Parler, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. You can also help us beat the algorithms by giving us five stars and encouraging comments in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.